Section 1 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami, September 2015. A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. Chapter 21. Bolingbroke Routed Again. While the King's friends and the Patriots, otherwise the Court Party and the Country Party, were speech-making and pamphleteering, one of the greatest English pamphleteers, who was also one of the masters of English fiction, passed quietly out of existence. On April 24, 1731, Daniel Defoe died. It does not belong to the business of this history to narrate the life or describe the works of Defoe. The book on which his fame will chiefly rest was published just twenty years before his death. Robinson Crusoe first thrilled the world in 1719. Robinson Crusoe has a place in literature as unassailable as Gulliver's Travels or as Don Quixote. Rousseau, in his Emile, declares that Robinson Crusoe should for a long time be his pupil's sole library, and that it would ever after through life be to him one of his dearest intellectual companions. At the present time, it is said English schoolboys do not read Robinson Crusoe. There are laws of literary reaction in the tastes of schoolboys as of older people. There were days when the English public did not read Shakespeare, but it was certain that Shakespeare would come up again, and it is certain that Robinson Crusoe will come up again. Defoe had been a fierce fighter in the political literature of his time, and that was a trying time for the political gladiator. He had, according to his own declaration, been thirteen times rich and thirteen times poor. He had always written according to his convictions, and he had a spirit that no enemy could cow, and that no persecution could break. He had had the most wonderful ups and downs of fortune. He had been patronized by sovereigns and persecuted by statesmen. He had been fined, he had been pensioned, he had been sent on political missions by one minister, and he had been clapped into Newgate by another. He had been applauded in the streets, and he had been hooted in the pillory. Had he not written Robinson Crusoe, he would still have held a high place in English literature, because of the other romances that came from his teeming brain, and because of the political tracts that made so deep and lasting an impression even in that age of famous political tracts. But Robinson Crusoe is to his other works like Aaron's Serpent, or the one master passion in the breast which the poet has compared with it it swallows all the rest. While all ages and descriptions of people, says Charles Lamb, hang delighted over the adventures of Robinson Crusoe, and will continue to do so, we trust, while the world lasts, how few comparatively will bear to be told that there exist other fictitious narratives by the same writer, four of them at least, of no inferior interest, except what results from a less felicitous choice of situation. Roxana, Singleton, Mal Flanders, Colonel Jack, are all genuine offsprings of the same father. They bear the veritable impress of Defoe. Even an unpractised midwife would swear to the nose, lip, 
forehead and eye of every one of them they are in their way as full of incident and some of them every bit as romantic only they want the uninhabited island and the charm that has bewitched the world of the striking solitary situation defoe died in poverty and solitude alone with his glory it is perhaps not uncurious to note that in the same month of the same year seventeen thirty one on april eighth mrs elizabeth cromwell daughter of richard cromwell the protector and granddaughter of oliver cromwell died at her house in bedford row in the eighty-second year of her age the death of gay followed not long after that of defoe the versatile author of the beggar's opera had been sinking for some years into a condition of almost unrelieved despondency he had had some disappointments and he was sensitive and took them too much to heart he had had brilliant successes and he had devoted friends but a slight failure was more to him than a great success and what he regarded as the falling off of one friend was for the time of more account to him than the steady and faithful friendship of many men and women shortly before his death he wrote i desire my dear mr pope whom i love as my own soul if you survive me as you certainly will if a stone should mark the place of my grave see these words put upon it life is a jest and all things show it i thought so once but now i know it gay died in the house of his friends the duke and duchess of queensbury on december fourth seventeen thirty two he was buried near the tomb of chaucer in westminster abbey and a monument was set up to his memory bearing on it pope's famous epitaph which contains the line in wit a man simplicity a child gay is but little known to the present generation young people or old people do not read his fables any more those fables which rousseau thought worthy of special discussion in his great treatise on education the gallant captain mcheath swaggers and sings across the operatic stage no more nor are tears shed now for pretty polly peacham's troubles yet every day some one quotes from gay and does not know what he is quoting from walpole was not magnanimous toward enemies who had still the power to do him harm when the enemy could hurt him no longer walpole felt anger no longer but it was not his humor to spare any man who stood in his way and resisted him if he was not magnanimous at least he did not affect magnanimity he did not pretend to regard with contempt or indifference men whom in his heart he believed to be formidable opponents it was a tribute to the capacity of a public man to be disliked by walpole a still higher tribute to be dreaded by him one of the men whom the great minister was now beginning to hold in serious dislike and dread was philip dormer stanhope earl of chesterfield born in sixteen ninety four chesterfield was still what would be called in political life a young man he was not quite forty he had led a varied and somewhat eccentric career his father a morose man had a coldness for him young stanhope according to his own account was an absolute pedant at the university when i talked my best i quoted horace when i aimed at being facetious i quoted marshall and when i had a mind to be a fine gentleman i talked ovid i was convinced that none but the ancients had common sense that the classics contained everything that was either necessary useful or ornamental to me 
and I was not even without thoughts of wearing the toga virilis of the Romans, instead of the vulgar and illiberal dress of the moderns. Later he had been a devotee of fashion and the gambling table, was a man of fashion and a gambler still. He had travelled, had seen and studied life in many countries and cities and courts, had seen and studied many phases of life. He professed to be dissipated and even licentious, but he had an ambitious and daring spirit. He knew well his own great gifts, and he knew also and frankly recognized the defects of character and temperament which were likely to neutralize their influence. If he entered the House of Commons before the legal age, if for long he preferred pleasure to politics, he was determined to make a mark in the political world. We shall see much of Chesterfield in the course of this history. We shall see how utterly unjust and absurd is the common censure which sets him down as a literary and political fribble. We shall see that his speeches were so good that Horace Walpole declares that the finest speech he ever listened to was one of Chesterfield's. We shall see how bold he could be, and what an enlightened judgment he could bring to bear on the most difficult political questions. We shall see how near he went to genuine political greatness. It is not easy to form a secure opinion as to the real character of Chesterfield. If one is to believe the accounts of some of his contemporaries who came closest to him and ought to have known him best, Chesterfield had scarcely one great or good quality of heart. His intellect no one disputed, but no one seems to have believed that he had any savour of truth or honour or virtue. Harvey, who is fond of beating out fancies fine, is at much pains to compare and contrast Chesterfield with Scarborough and Carteret. Thus, while Lord Scarborough was always searching after truth, loving it and adhering to it, Chesterfield and Carteret were both of them most abominably given to fable, and both of them often unnecessarily and consequently indiscreetly so, for whoever would lie usefully should lie seldom. Lord Scarborough had understanding, with judgment, and without wit. Lord Chesterfield, a speculative head, with wit, and without judgment. Lord Scarborough had honour and principle, while Chesterfield and Carteret treated all principles of honesty and integrity with such open contempt that they seemed to think the appearance of these qualities would be of as little use to them as the reality. In short, Lord Scarborough was an honest, prudent man, capable of being a good friend, while Lord Chesterfield and Carteret were dishonest, imprudent creatures, whose principles practically told all their acquaintance, if you do not behave to me like knaves, I shall either distrust you as hypocrites or laugh at you as fools. We have said already in this history that a reader in getting at an estimate of the character of Lord Harvey will have to strike a sort of balance for himself between the extravagant censure flung at him by his enemies and the extravagant praise blown at him by his friends. But we find no such occasion or opportunity for striking a balance in the case of Lord Chesterfield. All the testimony goes the one way. What do we hear of him? That he was dwarfish, that he was hideously ugly, that he was all but deformed, that he was utterly unprincipled, vain, false, treacherous, and cruel, that he had not the slightest faith in the honor of men or the virtue of women, that he was silly enough to believe himself, with all his personal defects, actually irresistible to the most gifted and beautiful woman, 
and that he was mendacious enough to proclaim himself the successful lover of women who would not have given ear to his love-making for one moment yet we cannot believe that chesterfield was by any means the monster of ugliness and selfish levity which his enemies and some who call themselves his friends have painted for posterity he was says harvey short disproportioned thick and clumsily made had a broad rough-featured ugly face with black teeth and a head big enough for polyphemus one ben ashurst who said few good things though admired for many told lord chesterfield once that he was like a stunted giant which was a humorous idea and really apposite his portraits do not by any means bear out the common descriptions of his personal appearance doubtless court painters then as now flattered or idealized but one can scarcely believe that any painter coolly converted a hideous face into a rather handsome one and went wholly unreproved by public opinion of his time the truth probably is that chesterfield's bitter sarcastic and unsparing tongue made him enemies who came in the end to see nothing but deformity in his person and perfidy in his heart it is easy to say epigrammatically of such a man that his propensity to ridicule in which he indulged himself with infinite humour and no distinction and with inexhaustible spirits and no discretion made him sought and feared liked and not loved by most of his acquaintance it is easy to say that no sex no relation no rank no power no profession no friendship no obligation was a shield from those pointed glittering weapons that seemed only to shine to a stander-by but cut deep in those they touched but to say this is not to say all or to paint a fair picture it is evident that he delighted in passing himself off on serious and heavy people as a mere trifler paradox-maker and cynic he invited them not to take him seriously and they did take him seriously but the wrong way they believed that he was serious when he professed to have no faith in anything when he declared that he only lived for pleasure and did not care by what means he got it that politics were to him ridiculous and ambition was the folly of a vulgar mind we now know that he had an almost boundless political ambition and we know too that when put under the responsibilities that make or mar statesmen he showed himself equal to a great task and proved that he knew how to govern a nation which no english statesman before his time or since was able to rule from dublin castle if the policy of chesterfield had been adopted with regard to ireland these countries would have been saved more than a century of trouble we cannot believe the statesman to have been only superficial and worthless who anticipated in his irish policy the convictions of burke and the ideas of fox the time however of chesterfield's irish administration is yet to come at present he is still only a rising man but every one admits his eloquence and his capacity it was he who moved in the house of lords the address of condolence congratulation and thanks for the speech from the throne on the accession of george the second since then he had served the king in diplomacy he had been minister to the hague and the hague then was a very different place in the diplomatist sense from what it is now or is ever likely to be again 
he had been employed on special missions and had been concerned in the making of important treaties he was rewarded for his services with the garter and was made lord steward of the household he had distinguished himself highly as an orator in the house of lords had taken a place among the very foremost parliamentary orators of the day but he chafed against walpole's dictatorship and soon began to show that he was determined not to endure too much of it he secretly did all he could to mar walpole's excise scheme he encouraged his three brothers to oppose the bill in the house of commons he said witty and sarcastic things about the measure which of course were duly reported to walpole's ears perhaps chesterfield thought he stood too high to be in danger from walpole's hand if he did think so he soon found out his mistake walpole's hand struck him down in the most unsparing and humiliating way public affront was added to political deprivation lord chesterfield was actually going up the great stairs of st james's palace on the day but one after the excise bill had been withdrawn when he was stopped by an officer and bidden to go home and bring back the white staff which was the emblem of his office of all the chief offices of the household and surrender it chesterfield took the demand thus ungraciously made with his usual composure and politeness he wrote a letter to the king which the king showed to walpole but did not think fit to answer the letter walpole afterwards told lord hervey was extremely laboured but not well done chesterfield immediately passed into opposition and became one of the bitterest and most formidable enemies walpole had to encounter walpole's friends always justified his treatment of chesterfield by asserting that chesterfield was one of a party who were caballing against the minister at the time of the excise scheme and while chesterfield was a member of the government chesterfield it was declared used actually to attend certain private meetings and councils of walpole's enemies to concert measures against him there is nothing incredible or even unlikely in this but even if it were utterly untrue we may assume that sooner or later walpole would have got rid of chesterfield walpole's besetting weakness was that he could not endure any really capable colleagues the moment a man showed any capacity for governing walpole would appear to have made up his mind that that man and he were not to govern together walpole made a clean sweep of the men in office whom he believed to have acted against him he even went so far as to deprive of their commissions in the army two peers holding no manner of office in the administration but whom he believed to have acted against him to strengthen himself in the house of lords he conferred a peerage on his attorney-general and on his solicitor-general philip york the attorney-general became lord hardwick and chief justice of the king's bench charles talbot was made lord chancellor under the title of lord talbot both were men of great ability hardwick stood higher in the rank at the bar than talbot and in the ordinary course of things he ought to have had the position of lord chancellor but talbot was only great as a chancery lawyer and knew little or nothing of common law and it would have been out of the question to make him lord chief justice so walpole devised a characteristic scheme of compromise hardwick was induced to accept the office of lord chief justice on the salary being raised from three thousand to four thousand pounds and with the further condition that an additional thousand a year 
was to be paid to him out of the Lord Chancellor's salary. This curious transaction Walpole managed through the Queen, and the Queen managed to get the King to regard it as a clever device of his own mention. It is worth while to note that the only charge ever made against Hardwick by his contemporaries was a charge of avarice. He was stingy, even in his hospitality. His enemies said a great offence in that day was to be parsimonious with one's guests, and malignant people called him Judge Grippus. For aught else his public and private character were blameless, Hardwick was the stronger man of the two, Talbot the more subtle and ingenious. Both were eloquent pleaders and skilled lawyers, each in his own department. Harvey says that no one could make more of a good cause than Lord Hardwick, and no one so much of a bad cause as Lord Talbot. Hardwick lived to have a long career of honor and to win a secure place in English history. Lord Talbot became at once a commanding influence in the House of Lords. Our new Lord Chancellor, the Earl of Strafford, England's nominal and ornamental representative in the negotiations for the Peace of Utrecht, writes to Swift, at present has a great party in the house. But the new Lord Chancellor did not live long enough for his fame. He was destined to die within a few short years and to leave the woolsack open for Lord Hardwick. The House of Commons has hardly ever been thrilled to interest and roused to passion by a more heated, envenomed, and in the rhetorical sense, brilliant debate than that which took place on March 13, 1734. The subject of the debate was the motion of a country gentleman, Mr. William Bromley, member for Warwick, that leave be given to bring in a bill for repealing the Septennial Act and for the more frequent meeting and calling of parliaments. The circumstances under which this motion was brought forward gave it a peculiar importance as a party movement. Before the debate began, it was agreed upon a formal motion to that effect that the sergeant-at-arms attending the House should go with the mace into Westminster Hall and into the court of bequests and places adjacent and summon the members there to attend the service of the House. The general elections were approaching. The Parliament then sitting had nearly run its course. The Patriots had been making every possible preparation for a decisive struggle against Walpole. They had been using every weapon which partisan hatred and political craft could supply or suggest. The fury roused up by the Excise Bill had not yet wholly subsided. Public opinion still throbbed and heaved like a sea in the morning after a storm. The Patriots had been exerting their best efforts to make the country dissatisfied with Walpole's foreign policy. The changes were incessantly rung upon the alleged depredations which the Spaniards were committing on our mercantile marine. Long before the time for the general elections had come, the Patriot candidates were stumping the country. Their progress through every county was marked by the wildest riots. These riots sometimes called for the sternest military repression. On the other hand, the patriots themselves were denounced and discredited by all the penmen, pamphleteers, and orators who supported the government on their own account, or were hired by Walpole and Walpole's friends to support it. So effective were some of these attacks, so damaging was the incessant imputation that, in the mouths of the patriots, 
patriotism meant nothing but a desire for place and pay, that Pulteney and his comrades found it advisable gradually to shake off the name which had been put on them and which they had at one time willingly adopted. They began to call themselves the representatives of the country interest. The final struggle of the session was to take place on the motion for the repeal of the Septennial Act. We have already given an account of the passing of that act in 1716, and of the reasons which, in our opinion, justified its passing. It cannot be questioned that there is much to be said in favor of the principle of short parliaments, but in Walpole's time the one great object of true statesmanship was to strengthen the power of the House of Commons, to enable it to stand up against the Crown and the House of Lords. It would be all but impossible for the House of Commons to maintain this position if it were doomed to frequent and inevitable dissolutions. Frequent dissolution of Parliament means frequently recurring cost, struggle, anxiety, wear and tear to the members, and, of course, it meant all this in much higher measure during the reign of George II than it could mean in the reign of Victoria. Walpole had devoted himself to the task of strengthening the representative assembly, and he was, therefore, well justified in resisting the motion made by Mr. Bromley on March 13, 1734, for the repeal of the Septennial Act. Our interest now, however, is not so much with the political aspect of the debate as with its personal character. One illustration of the corruption which existed at the time may be mentioned in passing. It was used as an argument against long parliaments, but assuredly at that day it might have been told of short parliaments as well. Mr. Watkin Williams Wynne mentioned the fact that a former member of the House of Commons, afterwards one of the judges of the Common Pleas, a gentleman who is now dead, and therefore I may name him, declared that he had never been in the borough he represented in Parliament, nor had ever seen or spoken with any of his electors. Of course, this worthy person, afterwards one of the judges of the Common Pleas, had simply sent down his agent and bought the place. I believe, added Mr. Wynne, I could without much difficulty name some who are now in the same situation. No doubt he could. Sir William Wyndham came on to speak. Wyndham was now, of course, the close ally of Bolingbroke. He hated Walpole. He made his whole speech one long denunciation of bribery and corruption, and gave it to be understood that in his firm conviction Walpole only wanted a long parliament because it gave him better opportunities to bribe and to corrupt. He went on to draw a picture of what might come to pass under an unscrupulous minister sustained by a corrupt septennial parliament. Let us suppose, he said, a gentleman at the head of the administration whose only safety depends upon his corrupting the members of this house. Of course Sir William went on to declare that he only put this as a supposition, but it was certainly a thing which might come to pass and was within the limits of possibility. If it did come to pass, could not such a minister promise himself more success in a septennial than he could in a triennial parliament? It is an old maxim, Wyndham said, that every man has his price. This allusion to the old maxim is worthy of notice in a debate on the conduct and character of Walpole. Evidently, Wyndham did not fall into the mistake, 
which posterity appears to have made and attribute to walpole himself the famous words about man and his price suppose a case quote, which though it has not happened may possibly happen let us suppose a man abandoned to all notions of virtue and honour of no great family and of but a mean fortune raised to be chief minister of state by the concurrence of many whimsical events afraid or unwilling to trust to any but creatures of his own making and most of these equally abandoned to all notions of virtue or honour ignorant of the true interest of his country and consulting nothing but that of enriching and aggrandizing himself and his favourites sir william described this suppositious person as employing in foreign affairs none but men whose education made it impossible for them to have such qualifications as could be of any service to their country or give any credit to their negotiations under the rule of this minister the orator described the true interests of the nation neglected her honour and credit lost her trade insulted her merchants plundered and her sailors murdered and all these things overlooked for fear only his administration should be endangered suppose this man possessed of great wealth the plunder of the nation with a parliament of his own choosing most of their seats purchased and their votes bought at the expense of the public treasury in such a parliament let us suppose attempts made to inquire into his conduct or to relieve the nation from the distress he has brought upon it would it not be easy to suppose all such attempts discomfited by a corrupt majority of the creatures whom this minister retains in daily pay or engages in his particular interest by granting them those posts and places which never ought to be given to any but for the good of the public sir william pictured this minister himself upon his scandalous victory because he found he got a parliament like a packed jury ready to acquit him at all adventures then glowing with his subject sir william wyndham ventured to suggest a case which he blandly declared had never yet happened in this nation but which still might possibly happen with such a minister and such a parliament let us suppose a prince upon the throne either from want of true information or for some other reason ignorant and unacquainted with the inclinations and the interests of his people weak and hurried away by unbounded ambition and insatiable avarice could any greater curse befall a nation than such a prince on the throne advised and solely advised by such a minister and that minister supported by such a parliament the nature of mankind the orator exclaimed cannot be altered by human laws the existence of such a prince of such a minister we cannot prevent by act of parliament but the existence of such a parliament i think we may and as such a parliament is much more likely to exist and may do more mischief while the septennial law remains in force than if it were repealed therefore i am most heartily in favour of its immediate repeal this was a very pretty piece of invective it was full of spirit fire and force nobody could have failed for a moment to know the original of the portrait sir william wyndham professed to be painting with imagination it was not indeed a true portrait of walpole but it was a perfect photograph of what his enemies declared and even believed walpole to be such was the picture which the craftsmen and the pamphleteers were painting every day as the likeness of the great minister but it was something new fresh and bold to paint such a picture under the eyes of walpole himself 
the speech was hailed with the wildest enthusiasm and delight by all the jacobites patriots and representatives of the country interest and there is even some good reason to believe that it gave a certain secret satisfaction to some of those who most steadily supported walpole by their votes but walpole was not by any means the sort of man whom it is quite safe to visit with such an attack the speech of sir william wyndham had doubtless been carefully prepared and walpole had but a short time but a breathing space while two or three speeches were made in which to get ready his reply when he rose to address the house it soon became evident that he had something to say and that he was determined to give his adversary at least as good as he got nothing could be more effective than walpole's method of reply it was not to sir william wyndham that he replied at least it was not sir william wyndham whom he attacked walpole passed wyndham by altogether wyndham he well knew to be but the mouthpiece of bolingbroke and it was at bolingbroke that he struck i hope i may be allowed he said to draw a picture in my turn and i may likewise say that i do not mean to give a description of any particular person now in being indeed walpole added ingenuously the house being cleared i am sure no person that hears me can come within the description of the person i am to suppose this was a clever touch and gave a new barb to the dart which walpole was about to fling the house was cleared none but members were present the description applied to none within hearing bolingbroke of course was not a member he could not hear what walpole was saying then walpole went on to paint his picture he supposed in this or some other unfortunate country an anti-minister in a country where he really ought not to be and where he could not have been but by an effort of too much goodness and mercy yet endeavouring with all his might and with all his art to destroy the fountain from whence that mercy flowed walpole depicted this anti-minister as one who thinks himself a person of so great and extensive parts and of so many eminent qualifications that he looks upon himself as the only person in the kingdom capable of conducting the public affairs of the nation walpole supposed this fine gentleman lucky enough to have gained over to his party some persons of really great parts of ancient families and of large fortunes and others of desperate views arising from disappointed and malicious hearts walpole grouped with fine free-hand drawing the band of conspirators thus formed under the leadership of this anti-minister all the band were moved in their political behaviour by him and by him solely all they said either in private or public was only a repetition of the words he had put into their mouths and a spitting forth of the venom which he had infused into them walpole asked the house to suppose nevertheless that this anti-minister was not really liked by any even of those who blindly followed him and was hated by the rest of mankind he showed him contracting friendships and alliances with all foreign ministers who were hostile to his own country in endeavouring to get at the political secrets of english administration in order that he might betray them to foreign and hostile states further he asked the house to suppose that this man travelling from foreign court to court making it his trade to betray the secrets of each court where he had most lately been void of all faith and honour 
delighting to be treacherous and traitorous to every master whom he had served and who had shown favour to him sir i should carry my suppositions a great deal further but if we can suppose such a one as i have pictured can there be imagined a greater disgrace to human nature than a wretch like this the ministers triumphed by a majority of two hundred and forty seven to one hundred and eighty four walpole was the victor in more than the mere parliamentary majority he had conquered in the fierce parliamentary duel there is a common impression that walpole's speech hunted bolingbroke out of the country that it drove him into exile and obscurity again as cicero's invective drove catiline into open rebellion this however is not the fact a comparison of dates settles the question the debate on the septennial bill took place in march of seventeen thirty four bolingbroke did not leave england until the early part of seventeen thirty five the actual date of his leaving england is not certain but pulteney writing to swift on april twenty ninth seventeen thirty five adds in a postscript lord bolingbroke is going to france with lord berkeley but i believe will return again in a few months no one could have known better than pulteney that bolingbroke was not likely to return to england in a few months still although bolingbroke did not make a hasty retreat history is well warranted in saying that walpole's powerful piece of invective closed the door once for all against bolingbroke's career in english politics bolingbroke could not but perceive that walpole's accusations against him sank deeply into the heart of the english people he could not but see that some of those with whom he had been most closely allied of late years were impressed with the force of the invective not indeed by its moral force but by the thought of the influence it must have on the country it may well have occurred to pulteney for example as he listened to walpole's denunciation that the value of an associate was more than doubtful whom the public could recognize at a glance as the original of such a portrait there had been disputes now and then already bolingbroke was too much disposed to regard himself as master of the situation pulteney was not unnaturally inclined to believe that he had a much better understanding of the existing political conditions he complained that wyndham submitted too much to bolingbroke's dictation the whole alliance was founded on unstable and unwholesome principles it was sure to crumble and collapse sooner or later there can be no question but that walpole's invective precipitated the collapse with consummate political art he had drawn his picture of bolingbroke in such form as to make it especially odious just then to englishmen the mere supposition that an english statesman has packed cards with a foreign enemy is almost enough in itself at any time to destroy a great career to turn a popular favorite into an object of national distrust or even national detestation but in bolingbroke's case it was no mere supposition no one could doubt that he had often traded on the political interests of his own country in truth there was but little of the englishman about him his gifts and his vices were alike of a foreign stamp walpole was for good or ill a genuine sturdy englishman his words his action his policy his schemes his faults his vices were thoroughly english 
it was as an englishman as an english citizen more than as a statesman or an orator that he bore down bolingbroke in this memorable debate bolingbroke must have felt himself borne down he did not long carry on the struggle into which he had plunged with so much alacrity and energy with such malice and such hope pulteney advised him to go back for a while to france and in the early part of seventeen thirty four he took the advice and went readers note this is a misprint in the text it should read in the early part of seventeen thirty five my part is over he wrote to wyndham in words which have a certain pathetic dignity in them and he who remains on the stage after his part is over deserves to be hissed off his departure it might almost be called his second flight to the continent was probably hastened also by the knowledge that a pamphlet was about to be published by some of his enemies containing a series of letters which had passed between him and james stuart's secretary after bolingbroke's dismissal from the service of james in seventeen sixteen the pamphlet was suppressed immediately on its appearance but its contents have been republished and they were certainly not of a character to render bolingbroke any the less unpopular among englishmen the correspondence consisted in a series of letters that passed between bolingbroke through his secretary and mr james murray acting on behalf of james stuart from whom he afterwards received the title of earl of dunbar the letters are little more than mere recriminations bolingbroke is accused of having brought about the failure of the insurrection of seventeen fifteen by weakness folly and even downright treachery bolingbroke flings back the charges at the head of james's friends and even of james himself there was nothing brought out in seventeen thirty four and seventeen thirty five to affect the career and conduct of bolingbroke which all england did not know pretty well already still the revival of these old stories must have seemed to bolingbroke very inconvenient and dangerous at such a time the correspondence reminded england once more that bolingbroke had been the agent of the exiled stuarts in the work of stirring up a civil war for the overthrow of the house of hanover no doubt the publication quickened bolingbroke's desire to get out of england but he would have gone in any case he would have had to go the whole cabal with pulteney had been a failure bolingbroke would thenceforward be a hindrance rather than a help to the patriots his counsel was of no further avail and he only brought odium on them indeed his advice had from first to last been misleading and ill-omened the patriots were now only anxious to get rid of him pulteney gave bolingbroke pretty clearly to understand that they wanted him to go and he went walpole's speech and the whole of the debate of which it made so striking a feature could not but have a powerful effect on the general elections parliament was dissolved on april sixteenth seventeen thirty four after having nearly run the full course of seven years seldom has a general election been contested with such prodigality of partisan fury and public corruption walpole scattered his purchase money everywhere he sowed with the sack and not with a hand to adopt the famous saying applied by a greek poetess to pindar in supporting two candidates for norfolk who were both beaten despite his support he spent out of his private fortune at least ten thousand pounds one contemporary says sixty thousand pounds 
but the opposition spent just as freely, more freely perhaps. It must be remembered that even so pure-minded a man as Burke has contended that the charge of systematic corruption was less applicable perhaps to Walpole than to any other minister who ever served the crown for such a length of time. The opposition was decidedly more reckless in their incitements to violence than the friends of the ministry. The craftsman boasted that when Walpole came to give his vote as an honorary freeman at Norwich, the people called aloud to have the bribery oath administered to him, called on him to swear that he had received no money for his vote. All the efforts of the patriots, or the representatives of the country interest, as they now preferred to call themselves, failed to bring about the end they aimed at. They did, indeed, increase their parliamentary vote a little, but the increase was not enough to make any material difference in their position. All the wit, the eloquence, the craft, the courage, the unscrupulous use of every weapon of political warfare that could be seized and handled had been thrown away, and Walpole was, for the time, just as strong as ever. We turn aside from the movement and rush of politics to lay a memorial spray on the grave of a good and gifted man. Dr. Arbuthnot died in February 1735, only sixty years old. Poor Arbuthnot, Paltney writes to Swift, who grieved to see the wickedness of mankind and was particularly esteemed of his own countrymen, is dead. He lived the last six months in a bad state of health and hoping every night would be his last, not that he endured any bodily pain, as he was quite weary of the world and tired with so much bad company. Alderman Barber, in a letter to Swift a few days later, says much the same. He's afraid, he tells Swift, that Arbuthnot did not take as much care of himself as he ought to have done. Possibly he might think the play not worth the candle. You may remember Dr. Garth said he was glad when he was dying, for he was weary of having his shoes pulled off and on. A letter from Arbuthnot himself to Swift, written a short time before his death, is not, however, filled with mere discontent, does not breathe only a morbid weariness of life, but rather testifies to a serene and noble resignation. I am going, he tells Swift, out of this troublesome world, and you, amongst the rest of my friends, shall have my last prayers and good wishes. I am afraid, my dear friend, we shall never see one another more in this world. I shall, to the last moment, preserve my love and esteem for you, being well assured you will never leave the paths of virtue and honor for all that is in the world. This world is not worth the least deviation from that way. Thus the great physician, scientific scholar, and humorist awaited his death and died. We have spoken already in this history of Arbuthnot's marvelous humor and satire. Macaulay, in his essay on the life and writings of Addison says, There are passages in Arbuthnot's satirical works which we, at least, cannot distinguish from Swift's best writing. Swift himself spoke of Arbuthnot in yet higher terms. He has more wit than we all have, was Swift's declaration, and his humanity is equal to his wit. There are not many satirists known to man during all literary history of whom quite so much could be said with any faintest color of a regard for truth. Swift was too warm in his friendly panegyric on Arbuthnot's humor, but he did not too highly estimate Arbuthnot's humanity. 
humor is among man's highest gifts and has done the world splendid service but humor and humanity together make the mercy winged with brave actions which according to massinger befit a soul moulded for heaven and destined to be made a star there End of chapter 21